Gentlemen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Natasha Pierre and The Great Comet of 1812. But first, I gotta ask, how are you doing? How's your job going? I had a rough week at my job. (laughs) I have a feeling that maybe there's someone out there who had a rough week at their job as well. It's frustrating, and sometimes podcasts are the only thing that keep you afloat. I hope that this show is, once again, I gotta say it, I hope that it is giving you some sort of uh, relief, some reprieve. I hope that you listen to it maybe on your break and get some joy out of it. It's the little things. Am I right? Am I right? Nine to fivers working nine to five. What a way to make a living. Patty, the chill has snapped. It has snapped. It is gone. It is warmer here in Chicago. Yes, she's nodding. Yes. <laughs> Patty, I, I got to jump into it. We, we've got so much to discuss today between our show and our big announcement at the end of the show. There's a big announcement at the end of the show. Spoiler alert. Let's start with the latest, right? We've got to have a segment up top. Why not talk about Rent Live? Or as I like to call it, Rent Not So Live. Ha ha ha. Rent Live. The only major thing I have to say about Rent Live, which aired on Fox, I believe, at this point, let's say years ago. (laughs) It was the lowest rated live TV musical event in the history of said events. Does anyone remember when Fox did A Christmas Story the musical live? I sure as hell didn't, but they did, and apparently it didn't do very well either. My big thought regarding Rent Live, how many times am I going to say before I actually deliver the thought to you like a newborn babe? Well, here you go, ma'am. Here's your newborn thought. My thought is, why did they change the section of La Vie Boheme in which we go into a book section. Collins says, in honor of the death of Bohemia, an impromptu salon will commence immediately following dinner. Mimi Marquez, clad only in bubble wrap, will perform her famous lawn chair handcuff dance to the sounds of iced tea being stirred. And Mark Cohen will preview his new documentary about his inability to hold an erection on the high holy days. And Maureen Johnson, back from her spectacular one-night engagement at the 11th Street lot, will sing Native American tribal chants backwards through her vocoder while accompanying herself on the electric cello, which she has never studied. It goes on from there. (laughs) If you're familiar with Rent, you're more than familiar with this particular section of La Vie Boheme. But for whatever reason, between all of the small changes uh, Fox decided to make to the show, they made this really big change. They took out that entire section, everything that I just quoted, and they replaced it with this new spoken dialogue in which all of the characters nominate each other and themselves for positions in the Bohemia cabinet, the greater administrative faculty of Bohemia. I'm looking at, Vulture did a pretty good breakdown of all the changes, and apparently during this new section, Mimi Marquez is given a lifetime appointment as Minister of National Security and BDSM. Mark Cohen became the Secretary of State. Maureen was the reigning queen, and Valentina as Angel was the beacon of hope in the darkest of days. The point is that it wasn't as good as the original. The original was just sort of corny fun, and there wasn't any foul language 
in the original. So why did why 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 did we make the change? I think someone got a little bit too earnest and excitable. Oh, I know how we can improve upon the show. That's not improving upon the show. It's just change for the sake of change. <sighs> I could I could give a thousand thoughts. I could deliver a thousand baby thoughts regarding Rent as it is, but we're not talking about that today. No, no, no. We're talking about Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, right, Patty? Patty, our producer, as always, doing fantastic work. Thank you so much, Patty. I, I should thank you at the end of the show, too, when I'm thanking Alex and Zach, because you're you're just as big a part of this as anyone else. Uh, so let's get some facts, right? we got to start with some cold, hard facts. Just the facts, ma'am. You ever watch a Dragnet? Just the facts, ma'am. That's what they would say, right? Just the facts, ma'am. Ah, 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 myth. They never actually said, just the facts, ma'am. Especially not like that. Like some sort of cartoon dog wearing a trench coat. Just the facts, ma'am. Rough. Natasha Pierre and The Great Comet of 1812 was a nominee at the 2017 Tony Awards for Best Musical. It did not win. It originally ran off-Broadway at three different venues. In 2012, it ran at a venue known as the Ars Nova. In 2013, it ran at a specially built structure called the Casino, and that was located within Manhattan's Meatpacking District. And then in 2014, the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, presented a production, and that would be in 2015. Did I say already that it took place in 2015? Oh no, my mind is swimming. The first two of those three stagings were highly immersive, with the action taking place within and around the audience. If you're in Chicago and if you're familiar with the hypocrites, that is also their style of staging, in which there is no traditional seating per se. The show is just sort of happening all around you, and you sort of have to take it all in as a very immersive, immediate experience. I have to assume that it is not the kind of show that you would want to go to if you're naturally claustrophobic or have a fear of being touched by strangers. Now, the third staging at the American Repertory Theater was set on a more traditional proscenium arch stage, which is what a lot of people are used to when they go to the theater. That's when you're facing uh, directly toward the theater and you see the arch in front of you, the arch that sort of separates the audience from the performers on stage stage. Uh, though, in this third production, the audience was able to sit on stage with the performers. I don't know if they sat exclusively on stage or if it was a mix of people on stage and then people sitting in traditional seats. Not quite sure about that, but the point is, this show started one way and then slowly on its way to Broadway began to shift as more traditional uh, needs and expectations were sort of throwing themselves around. That weight was being thrown around, and so the production changed to suit those expectations. It opened on Broadway on November 14th, 2016 at the Imperial Theater and ran for 336 performances, so a little bit better than some of the shows that we've discussed in the past. This staging cost $14 million to produce. Why? Why was it so expensive? If you'll recall, The Goodbye Girl in 1993 was a $7 million production. So this is double that in 2016 dollars. So my theory is that the staging was, so the staging was comparable to that of the American Repertory production, but for the purposes of coming to Broadway, they writ 200 seats 
from the Imperial Theater, completely removed them to accommodate the set design and the staging. And I have to assume that if you're going to be altering a Broadway venue to that extent, that's going to cost a lot of money. That That's straight up construction. That's not even really set design. The, I mean, you're bringing in all sorts of city elements. I have to assume city codes and standards and uh, legalities. And I have a feeling that that was the large bulk of uh, the show's budget, that $14 million budget. The book, music, and lyrics were all written by one individual, that individual being Dave Malloy. The director of the Broadway production was Rachel Chafkin. The choreographer was Sam Pinkleton. The set design and costume design. From here on out, we are going to be crediting the set designers and the costume designers. I realize I should have been doing that right from the beginning, so I apologize to anyone who has not been acknowledged in the past. But the set design was by Mimi Lien, and the costume design was by Paloma Young. The original Broadway cast included Josh Groban making his Broadway debut, Danae Benton also making her Broadway debut, Lucas Steele, Britton Ashford, Amber Gray, Grace McLean, Nick Choksi, Nicholas Belton, Gelsey Bell, and Paul Pinto. Uh, the show did receive 12 nominations at the Tonys in total, including Best Musical. It took home two awards. Here's the entire breakdown of all of their uh, nominations. So, of course, it was nominated for uh, Best Musical. It was nominated for Best Book of a Musical. Dave Malloy received nominations for Best Original Score and Best Orchestration. Josh Groban received a nomination for Best Actor in a Musical. Danae Benton was nominated for Best Actress in a Musical. Lucas Steele was nominated for Best Featured Actor in a Musical. Uh, Mimi Leanne won... Uh, one of the two uh, awards. That would be for her scenic design, best scenic design in a musical. Paloma Young uh, was nominated for best costume design in a musical. And then the second award went to Bradley King. That was for his lighting design. Uh, to round this out, Rachel Chafkin was nominated for best direction of a musical. And Sam Pigleton was nominated for best choreography. So a dozen nominations and two wins. Uh, I'm not sure if that would have been viewed as a disappointment. It certainly seems that the show received a lot of love initially but, I mean, clearly it was not able to convince enough Tony uh, voters to really bring home a lot of those medallions. Uh, so that's unfortunate. Now, Wikipedia, uh, let's jump to the, uh, the casting section. Jump back to that. Jump back! Under the heading Controversy on Wikipedia, there is a whole breakdown of a particular casting moment towards the end of the run of Natasha Pierre. Akiriate Anidawan, uh, otherwise known as Oak, he was uh, the one of the original actors in Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton. He played James Madison. Uh, he was cast at one point uh, to take the role of Pierre from Josh Groban. He assumed the role of Pierre on July 11th, 2017, and he was scheduled to perform a limited run through August 13th, 2017. So again, he started on July 11th. Now on July 26th, of that year. It was announced that Mandy Patinkin, of course, big icon of the Broadway stage, would replace him for a, th a three-week run, thus cutting Oak's run short. Now, fans of Natasha and Oak specifically were uh, incredibly outraged by the idea that a white actor was essentially going to be bumping a black actor uh, who was in the middle of his own run, presumably for the sake of increasing ticket sales. Now, I assume that when Oak was originally cast to begin with, it was with the intent of increasing ticket sales. I believe the idea behind it was if you enjoyed him in Hamilton, hopefully you will cross over, you will come and see our show as well because you are a fan of Oaks. The 
the harsh truth is that Mandy Patinkin is a much bigger name when slapped onto a marquee. So I think there was even more cynicism here on the part of the people, you know, behind the scenes. I think they very consciously made the decision to cut Oaks Run short so that they could get a bigger name and bigger uh, profits. That's the harsh reality of it. I think that's exactly what was happening. Now, because of this outcry, Mandy Patinkin dropped out of his engagement two days after it was announced. So it was announced on the 26th. By the 28th, he had already backed out because he didn't want to, uh, to his credit, I'm pretty sure he just, he simply did not want to take a role from a younger actor. Uh, He didn't want to participate in this controversy. He didn't want to add to the ill will, the bad feelings. So he, he backed out to his credit. Uh, or maybe I'm giving him too much credit and he was just, <laughs> he was completely over the drama and he didn't want his career to be affected in any way. Uh, when the show closed a month later, this casting controversy was cited as the main reason for the show's closure. I don't really buy that. Wikipedia, I mean, it very specifically says this was cited as the main reason for its closure. End of section. That you, they, Wikipedia moves on to the next section and we're not left with any, there's no source cited, you know, no think piece written about why that would be true. I don't think it's necessarily true. I feel like that was probably a very minor story that didn't get a lot of national or even citywide attention. I think it was probably pretty contained, fairly contained. I think it has to do with the fact that it was a $14 million production, and it's also a very niche show, as we will find, the material is highly literate. Uh, it expects a lot of the audience, and I don't think it's nearly a, as a, it's it's not nearly as friendly a tourist trap as something like Wicked or Legally Blonde or, you know, The Lion King. I think it expects a lot from people and people just didn't bite. I guess I respect anyone who has a really well thought out argument as to why this casting controversy sunk the show. Uh, I would more be more than willing to listen to that, but I just, at the end of the day, I don't think that's true. I think it just comes down to harsh economics. People weren't showing up, and that's it. So the plot. The plot of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. I mentioned it was highly niche. It's so niche, in fact, that it is technically an adaptation of a 70-page segment from Volume 2 Part 5 of Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. We're taking the entirety of War and Peace and we're getting rid of the majority of it so we can focus on the characters and goings-ons, the goings-ons, if you will, of this 70-page segment. That's pretty niche right off the bat. How many times can I say niche? The show is completely sung through outside of a very particular single line of dialogue that comes almost exactly in the last moments of the show. Nearly all of the actors in the Broadway production played instruments to augment the orchestra. So there was a full orchestra. Uh, This is not a scenario uh, like that company production, if anyone's familiar with the company production that ran, oh goodness, at this point over a decade ago, where everyone on stage played their instruments and that was the totality of the sound, the entirety of the sound. Those performers in company were not supplemented by a full orchestra. With Natasha Pierre, they're more of a compliment. They're more of a fun seasoning on top of the delicious stew that the orchestra is preparing and serving to the audience. Ooh, who's hungry? Natasha, uh, the titular role of Natasha, she is 19. She's young and new to the world slash society. Her eyes are wide and she is a company 
accompanied on her journey into this great wide world by her cousin, Sonia. And so Natasha and Sonia are very close. They're best of friends. And they enter into the world by going to stay with their godmother, uh, Maria. Maria is this grand dame of Moscow. She knows everyone and anyone, and she knows how to introduce them into proper society. She's very stern, but at the same time, very kind. Andre is Natasha's fiance, so he is at war. There is a war that is consistently referenced. Uh, There are no specifics. Uh, I believe it is some pretty specific commentary on how uh, those at home regard the war as an abstract concept, while other people are actually fighting it. Uh, Andre is largely absent from the show. He does not enter into it until deep into the second act. Andre uh, is the son of Prince Bolkonsky. Uh, Prince Bolkonsky is an old, crazy, abusive fuck. He's completely demented, and he abuses his daughter, Andre's sister, Mary. Uh, Mary is a spinster. She has been made to act as the prince's caretaker, and she's utterly alone, isolated from the rest of the world, and hopelessly miserable. Pierre, the titular role of Pierre. Pierre is a wealthy sourpuss. He's an illegitimate son of aristocracy. He is a a good friend to uh, Maria, the godmother, one must remind us, of Natasha and Sonia. Pierre is just a big old drunk. He's a uh, very literate intellectual, but he is plagued by thoughts concerning his age, his inadequacy, how he has wasted his life. Pierre's a big old Debbie Downer. Uh, Rachel Dratch, I think, would actually be quite good as Pierre. And then Pierre, it should be noted, is married to a woman named Helene. Helene is generally a very bitter woman who believes that she should have never married Pierre. It's very clear that their relationship is wrought with toxic feeling. Helene is the sister uh, to Anatole. Anatole is incredibly hot. He is described in the script, I believe, as David Bowie-like. And he is married, although almost no one knows this fact. He was forced to marry a woman in Poland, but because everyone in this show is in Moscow, he believes that he can keep that secret. No one will ever know about it, and he can essentially fuck whoever he wants. Uh, And the uh, only two characters that we have left to describe about Dolikov, uh, Dolikov is having an affair with uh, Helene, Pierre's wife. That's true. Dolikov is having sex with her behind Pierre's back. And when I say behind Pierre's back, it is not really concealed. They almost do nothing to uh, hide this fact. They kind of flaunt it in front of his face, and it leads to Pierre and Dolikov engaging in a duel with each other at a certain point within the show. Uh, Dolikov is Anatole's friend and conspirator. He does try to uh, instill some level of logic and uh, compassion within Anatole, but it doesn't really work. And Balaga is a character that is described by the cast as just for fun. He is a wild, uh, manic driver who assists Anatole and Dolikov in their in their schemes, in their pursuits. But what are these schemes and these pursuits? It may seem as if the plot is going to be very complicated, but if I may boil it down to you, this is ultimately the story of Natasha, a young woman who abandons 
her engagement to Andre uh, so that she may be seduced by the wicked and conspiratorial Anatole. Anatole does genuinely, I think on some level, believe that he is in love with Natasha, but at the end of the day, it purely comes down to hyper-toxic masculinity, this need to uh, obtain and have what he desires at any cost. Society be damned, uh, hearts be damned, minds be damned. He will ruin and destroy anyone in his frothy pursuit of Natasha. Uh, Many people try to prevent Natasha from running away with Anatole and eloping with him. Uh, Sonia, Dolikov, and uh, the godmother Maria all try to intervene, but Natasha, Natasha is blinded. She is driven uh, borderline mad by her lust for Anatole, and she tells him essentially to fuck off. None of you people know what you're talking about. I abandoned my original engagement, and I will be forever with Anatole. Unfortunately, that all completely falls apart. Anatole is revealed to be a coward. Uh, Maria chases him off. Pierre confronts him when Anatole essentially tries to bail on the entire enterprise. And as a result, Natasha tries to kill herself. She, uh, She ingests arsenic, but it does not kill her. She is able to recover, and she is comforted by Pierre. Pierre is someone who has admired her uh, as a general, vague family friend from afar. They don't really know each other all that well. But the godmother, Maria, runs to Pierre when she starts to fear that their family reputation is going to fall apart. And it is a conversation that occurs between Pierre and Natasha that allows Natasha to find uh, new life, find new meaning in life. Uh, this is the scene in which we hear the only line of spoken dialogue. I will play that uh, later during our track-by-track breakdown. And they have this connection. Now, she is 19, and he is quite a bit older than her, and I'm not quite sure what his feelings are towards her. I don't necessarily think they're romantic. He is initially disgusted by the fact that she would break off the engagement with Andre uh, because Pierre is technically friends with Andre. He writes letters to Andre uh, who is out uh, fighting in the war and he is horrified by Natasha's actions because they remind him of what his own wife has done, Helene. And he's very disappointed in Natasha when it is revealed that she has abandoned Andre and her commitments. But when they actually meet face to face, they he realizes uh, that he cannot judge her because she has so much of her life left to live, and he encourages her to take that time and use it wisely. And Pierre, he's benefited by the conversation as well because uh, he's able to walk away with a newfound sense of awe. He realizes, I think, that he is a very small part of the universe, but it doesn't bother him. It doesn't sadden him. He no longer sees himself as irrelevant. He sees himself, I believe, this is my interpretation of the finale at least, as someone who can have a good impact on other people, and he doesn't have to become disgusted with himself and trapped in a room removed from the rest of society. He can be a part of this larger universe. And he has that revelation while uh, watching the great comet of 1812 soar through the sky above him. That reference to the comet is the only reference we really get in the final moments of the show. Otherwise, we never even hear about it, which I find to be very interesting. That's the plot breakdown! Yay! For the purposes of this episode, I listened to the 2012 off-Broadway cast album, as well as the 2016 Broadway cast album. I also watched the Tony's clip. Of course! The off-Broadway cast album 
album, the, that version of the show, that sound that you're going to be hearing throughout this episode is shaggier and scrappier. That's what I wrote down, but only to a marginal degree. I'm glad that the show didn't lose a ton of its unique strangeness on its journey to Broadway. Uh, if you have to choose one of the albums to listen to, I would go with Off-Broadway, but you'll be hearing clips from both, just to let you know. Just to let you know. The Tony's clip is essentially impenetrable if you don't already have a reference for the show, its story, and its characters. It's a fun medley, but I can just imagine people being totally dumbfounded by it at the same time. It's kind of an impossible nut to crack when you just take it on its own. Now, the songs. Let's talk about the songs. This is a beefy two-disc undertaking. There's a lot here, so strap in. I have a note on style. I love how the show deftly overlays classy, period-appropriate orchestrations with bug nuts, EDM, techno-electronic musicalizations. I really, really like that. It's delightfully trippy and oftentimes transcendent, and there's a lot of clear artistry on display where the lyrics are often metatextual and ironic, the music is always earnest, and that provides a really nice balance. Sadly, the Broadway album uh, loses a good percentage of the EDM influence. I think that is what was lost on its way to Broadway for some reason. I, I can hear someone in a room saying, that's going to alienate people, that's going to put people off. Why don't we, let's walk in the direction of a more Broadway orchestral sound. Broadway. Let's move towards a more Broadway sound, shall we? I think we shall. The prologue. Last two, three. And this is all of your program. You are at the opera. Gonna have to study up a little bit if you want to keep with the plots. Because it's a complicated Russian novel. Everyone's got nine different names. So look it up in your program. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Da-da-da. 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 Did you just hear that clip? <laughs> yes, fantastic. The show understands that Sporting Eleven characters is inherently intimidating. It pokes fun at the Byzantine nature of its source material by reducing every character to sound bites, uh, very much in the style of The Twelve Days of Christmas, if you're familiar with that novelty tune. Let's get that uh, clip of the character breakdown right here. Chandeliers and caviar, the war can't touch us here. is crazy and Mary's plane Andre's family totally messed up and Balaga's just for fun Balaga's just for fun Everyone is constantly declaring their intentions and describing their literal physical actions at every possible opportunity in this score so that nothing is obscured or made unclear. Uh, I am grimacing. I am touching your bare neck and shoulder. I am having many feelings at once, etc. I'm going to be giving you specific quotes from the score as we continue throughout these tracks. It's an efficient and oftentimes very funny style of storytelling, and and that, that starts.
starts right here with the prologue, though that irony, I will say, can occasionally put some distance between the show and its audience, making it harder to connect with anyone on a deeper emotional level. All that said, it is fun. Uh, if Even if it does make the show seem like a trifle at times, I'm fine with that. Who doesn't enjoy a good trifle every now and then? I would like to compare the two performances that are featured on the 2012 Off-Broadway album and the 2016 Broadway album. Now, Dave Malloy, who you'll recall is the writer of the uh, book, music, and lyrics, he played Pierre in the original 2012 Off-Broadway production. And then for the purposes of the Broadway staging, they brought in Josh Groban. So I'm going to play uh, a very specific cut from the song Pierre, and I want you to hear Dave Malloy first, and then you're going to hear Josh Groban. So let's get those two clips tucked real nicely side by side. I drink too much Right now my friend fights and bleeds And I sit at home and read Hours at a time Right now, my friend fights and bleeds, and I sit at home and read. Hours at a time, hours at my screen. Anything, anything, abandoned to distraction, in order to forget we waste our lives, drowning in wine. I never thought that I'd end up like this. a real toss-up as to what version of the character you're going to enjoy more. But I like how this song establishes that, be it yesterday or today, there are always those who feel hopelessly cut off from society and lost in what they view as pointless routine. It's nice to know that that is a sentiment that can be found in any day and age, isn't it? Makes you feel a little less crazy. The private and intimate life of the house. Uh, this is the song in which we establish Prince Bokonski is a deranged old man. He is nuts and awful. And Mary, his daughter, his caretaker, kind of wants to kill him. Bring me my slipper. Yes, father, yes, father. Bring me my wine. Yes, father, yes, father. Oh, father, and I never go anywhere. Never invited. For who will take care of him? Who will take care of him? Well, I have no friends. And I have no friends. No, no, friends. no, no I have no friends. No, 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 all my friends are dead. No, 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 all my friends are dead. I really like this song. It does a good job of making the prince uh, equally humorous and disgusting and unknowable. He's so he's so deranged that he is completely within a fog as a character. You cannot predict what he's going to do or say. 
But you can, I guess, predict that it more than likely is going to be abusive. He's a real piece of shit. And we feel bad for Mary uh, for being the main target of his abuse. But it's also morbidly funny. They actually managed to pull that off. And it's mainly because uh, the character is just the character of Bokonski is just so fucking kooky. No one else is a good showcase for Natasha. I really like the clip that you just heard in which Natasha says, maybe he'll come today. Maybe he came already. She's thinking about Andre and she is desperate to have him back in her life because he is an anchor point for her. And without him, she feels completely adrift. Uh, It's not an especially memorable song outside of that one particular moment, that clip that I played for you, because I I like that moment. It really crystallizes what the absence of Andre does to Natasha. This absence is what ultimately propels Natasha into the arms of Anatole. Opera is a really great track. I love that caterwauling, haunted ghost uh, overture, that orchestral warm-up that the opera, uh, that the that the production that they're watching. They don't even name the production that they're watching. It's just known as the opera. But I love that really psychotic overlay of voices and instruments. Uh, it, it evokes the style of the, the sound that you would hear during a warm-up, but it just makes the opera sound like an orgy of monsters <laughs> that are sort of crawling their way out of the depths of hell so that they may perform for us mere mortals. It's this is when the show gets really fucking weird and it's it's the it's one of the best parts of the show I would I would have to say. There are also on this track the opera there are so many references to bare arms, bare shoulders, bare necks. These are the erogenous zones uh, for the characters within this world and it cracks me up. Natasha actively sits in awe of another woman's neck and I find that to be very funny. She can't get enough of 
on bare skin. Uh, the opera itself uh, cracks me up because it's presented as this I am the walrus drug trip experience for everyone in the audience but Natasha. I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but for my interpretation is that not, Natasha finds it to be vaguely amusing, but also kind of stupid. And she's sort of aghast and shocked by the fact that so many people think think that it's an intellectual smorgasbord, the height of entertainment. <laughs> and I, I find that to be funny. Look, I find a lot of things to be funny, okay? Ha ha ha. The track also serves as Anatole's entrance. I want to play this. Uh, there's a moment. It's like a, that moment in every teen movie where the hot guy appears on camera for the first time, moving in slow motion. And he's always accompanied by a sick beat drop. Think eighth grade. Eighth grade really did a good job of making fun of that convention. And that convention is very much on display here. And I want to play that for you later. Now. Now. And then... A rush of cold air An exceptionally handsome man walked in With a confident yet courteous air This was Helene's brother Anatole Kragen a swagger which would have been ridiculous had he not been so good looking the duel all right so a lot is going on throughout the track known as the duel this is when the show dives headfirst into the edm influences Lutolikov's coming around and we are off to the club will you come old man I will come. Lend me 50 rubles. Drink, drink, gonna drink tonight, gonna drink tonight, gonna drink, gonna drink, gonna drink tonight, gonna drink tonight, gonna drink tonight, gonna drink, drink, gonna drink tonight, gonna drink tonight, gonna, gonna drink, gonna drink tonight, gonna drink Also says, this is a direct quote from the score. The doctors warn me that with my corpulence, vodka and wine are dangerous for me. But I drink a great deal, only quite at ease, after pouring several glasses mechanically into my large mouth. I... More than anything, I like that style of that 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 level of description. It's very much within my my fucking ballpark. I really like stuff like that. Hyper literate and like very specific large mouth mechanically into my large mouth. That's my bowl of cherries. I could eat those for days. Those little fucking nuggets. They're so silly to me and I really like them. It's a rock solid detail. For the Broadway version, they wrote a song called Dust and Ashes. They say we are asleep until we fall in love. We are children of dust and ashes. But when we fall in love, we wake up and we are a god and angels. We 
I die here tonight I die in my sleep They say we are asleep so ready to wake up now I want to wake up That's the best part of the song by the way. They have Josh Groban sing that in the Tony's performance because they know that that's the best part of what is otherwise, with time having passed, I realize that it is otherwise a very forgettable song. It is it is clearly written for Josh Groban so he can have more stage time, so we can beef up his presence in the show and justify fans of his coming and buying, you know, very expensive Broadway tickets to see Natasha Pierre. I understand that. You know, that's it isn't the first time that's happened. You know, a, a star is given his or her own song to better justify their presence and their salary. I get that. It wants to very deftly walk this balance beam without falling completely into the world of Josh Groban's you know, middle-aged aunts and gay uncle fans, you know, that mid to late evening NBC special presentation sound, but it also doesn't want to be a proper Natasha Pierre song. So there are moments when it's a little oddball, very much in the style of what we've seen before. And then there are many other moments, like the clip I played for you, where it just is kind of schmaltzy and kind of cheesy. I like schmaltz. I like cheese. If anything, the song should have leaned more towards that first side, that left side. Go for the aunties. Go for the gay uncles, I say. Because when this song interrupts itself to get a little pattery and wacky, it really doesn't work. The lyrics especially are not nearly as good as they are when compared to uh, other songs. I think at one point, Pierre talks about how he's wearing clown shoes. I also think he just describes himself as dumb. Just straight up dumb. It's not clever. It's not insightful in any way. It's just very flat. It's very pedestrian. And I'm a little disappointed in it the more that I think about it. I'm disappointed in you, song. Oh, how she blushes, how she blushes, my Charming is a great song for Helene because at this point in the show, Anatole has asked Helene to go visit Natasha and invite her to this large costume ball because it is his intention to seduce her at said costume ball. And when Helene meets Natasha for the first time, uh, you know, one-on-one, she delivers this song, Charming, and it's this wonderfully old-school Disney-esque villain song. She's getting to be crackly and she gets to be cackling throughout it in the style of Ursula and the Little Mermaid. Uh, Maybe some people would think that's a stretch, but I don't at all. Uh, Both Amber Gray and Lily Cooper on the two respective cast albums have a lot of fun with this role. Uh, It very quickly became one of my favorite songs overall, uh, whereas a lot of the other tracks have rock-solid 
moments, but they're isolated moments. And overall, a lot of the other tracks sort of blend together and don't really stick with me. When discussing Letters, it's another great opportunity to compare the off-Broadway album to the Broadway album. Uh, I want to play for you the exact same chunk of music. First, let's get the clip from the 2012 off-Broadway album. In 19th century Russia, we write letters, we write letters. We put down in writing what is happening in our minds. Once it's on the paper, we feel better, we feel better. It's like some kind of clarity when the letter's done and signed. And now let's get that same chunk of music, as I said, from the Broadway album. In 19th century Russia, we write letters, we write letters. We put down in writing what is happening in our minds. Once it's on the paper, we feel better, we feel better. It's like some kind of clarity when the letter's done and signed. Original, I, I, you know, I'm kind of being this type of person that's like, I like the original more. I was a fan of theirs before they got into <laughs> arenas. But I do. I like the original album more. It feels more intimate and fringy. Uh, Letters with a bigger chorus and smoother orchestrations just isn't the same as the funky original. And that's just too bad. It's not, <laughs> I mean, it's not a... A total disaster in any way. It's a very slight change, but I noticed it nonetheless. Oh, I will stand in the dark for you. I will hold you back by force. I will stand here right outside your door. I won't see you disgrace. Sonia Alone. Okay, so this comes after Sonia has tried to warn Natasha about the dangers of eloping with Anatole, and Natasha has basically told her to go fuck herself. So Sonia is all alone, and I love I love Britton Ashford as Sonia. I'm a big fan of her in this role. She played the part of Sonia in every version of the show. So the three off-Broadway productions that I mentioned and Broadway, her voice is so rounded and wistful. It's quavering and it's beautiful. It's just absolutely beautiful. I love her sound. This is a great song and it's a great character. You should really, if you're going for a character in Natasha Pierre, go for Sonia. Uh, this should be used in auditions, okay? So if you're, uh, if you're in the mode, if you're in that routine of auditioning for shows, get Sonia alone. And I'm telling you, it's going to be really effective. I don't think a lot of people are doing this song. I'm telling you, I was a theater major in college. I made a lot of bad choices. And I think that I can help people to make good choices now. So please, I beg of you, listen to me. Balaga's track, which is straight up known as Balaga, I, I bring it to the table because it takes place during the sequence in which Anatole abducts Natasha so that they may elope. And I bring it to the table because of one particular lyric uh, in which <laughs> the chorus goes, it's and then Balaga just straight up says, driving mad at 12 miles an hour, coming straight at you, get out of my way, get out of my way. I really like that detail, driving mad at 12 miles an hour. Very funny. Once again, I would like to use a song to examine the differences between the off-Broadway and Broadway cast albums. So let's do that with the track Find Anatole. I would like to play a clip of Dave Malloy right here. Anatole, find Anatole, Anatole, find Anatole. 
all is going on as usual The members eat their dinners And gossip in small groups Have I heard Kroggan's abduction? Is it true Natasha's ruined? Nonsense, nonsense Nothing has happened Everything is fine And I would like to play a clip of Josh Groban Singing the same chunk of music Here Anatole, find Anatole Anatole, find Anatole To the club And at the club, all is going on as usual. The members eat their dinners and gossip in small groups. Have I heard Karagin's abduction? Is it true? Natasha is ruined. Nonsense, nonsense. Nothing has happened. Everything is fine. By this point in my journey with the show, it had become so much more clear that Dave Malloy better inhabits the twitchy and unpredictable nature of Pierre, whereas Groban is more clearly playing a part that's outside his type and comfort zone. It's very clear uh, when you compare those two clips. Uh, You get the sense when you see Groban in the Tony's clip, especially when he's wearing his padded stomach, uh, it gives him this false aesthetic. It looks very strange, like your friend is in a production and he's a little stiff under all of the weight that the costume is sort of dragging him down with. It's it's very strange. At the end of the day, I want a naturally oddball Pierre. Give me Dave Poloy's, Dave Malloy's Pierre, or give me death, I do say. Give me death! There is a very funny lyric in the song Pierre and Anatole. This is when Pierre has finally tracked down Anatole and has pulled him aside for a confrontation. And I'm not going to play it here, I just want to read it out loud. That lyric is, My face, already pale, becomes distorted by fury. I seize you by the collar with my big, big hands, and I shake you from side to side until your face shows a sufficient degree of terror. Ah, big, big hands. Big, big hands. What a great description. It's so funny to me. I like any moment in the show where a character is very explicitly describing what they're doing. I wish there was a thousand percent more of it. Pierre and Natasha is the moment in which uh, these two characters finally meet face to face and have a very intimate experience with each other. The score is stripped down utterly to a simple piano backing. The single line of dialogue from Pierre, uh, you're going to hear the Dave Malloy off-Broadway version here in a second, is really effective. If, If I were not myself, but but the brightest, handsomest, best man on earth. And if I were free, I I would get down on my knees this minute and ask you for your hand and for your love. Natasha thinks her life is over, and Pierre has thought of his life as having been over for many, many years. He assures her she has a great deal of time left, and that if he were a better, freer man, if he was not with Helene, he would help her to live a happy life. I like how calm this is when compared to everything that precedes it. We strip away all of that metatextual, ironic humor, and we have, at this point, decided to let the show be for... Uh, grown-ups, not just, you know, people who enjoy uh, snarky intellectual humor. And I like that. I li- this is very messy. The gender politics
politics on display are very messy. As I said, uh, closer to the top of the show, Natasha is 19. Pierre is much older than her. And their dynamic, what they're saying to each other. You know, I I, I have my interpretations, which I laid out, but I, I those could be wrong. You could have a completely different take on what is going on between these two characters in these final moments. Uh, but yeah, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, the, the politics that are on display here, the commentary that's being put forth uh, in regards to the genders, how they relate to each other in this older setting of Moscow and how it relates to today. What is the show saying about us today as people? Uh, It's hard to pin down, and I I kind of appreciate that. It's not as uh, as clear-cut as as some people might expect or want, and I, I can respect that. I can respect that. So that's it. That's our breakdown of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. And now, of course, we'll get a word from our fine, fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. So I said to him, if you're going to put a hat on a horse, then put a hat on the horse. Don't try to quibble about it. Put the hat on the horse. Oh, hello there. I didn't see you there because I'm above your station. Hello. I'm Eliza Doolittle, and I have been caught. Oh, you've caught me, I do say. You've caught me in a moment of a reverie. Oh, yes, that's because I have been sipping daintily with a single pinky in the air, as is my wont, from a toasty cup of 5678 coffee. Now, you might know of my story from the musical My Fair Lady. You might know of my time with Henry Higgins, the uh, supposed aristocrat, the sophisticate, who taught me how to rise above my original station. Well, let me tell you right now, fuck him and fuck you for thinking that's the truth. The truth is, is that I pulled myself out of that original station and I do despise it. Oh, yes, that is true. I do look down on my own drunken father and all of his playmates. I do look down on the dredges of society, the dregs. Is it dredges or dregs? Excuse me, do you know if it's dredges or dregs? I would so hate to mispronounce a word. That would be so gauche, wouldn't you say? I would say so myself. Look, you have to understand, 5678 coffee is the only coffee for truly sophisticated women. Women who stand on their own two feet and tell everyone else to fuck right off. You know what I say? You know what I say? Do you know what I am? saying. That's the proper way to say it. I remember back when I lived with my father in the dredges, the dregs of society. I used to drink gray soap water from a raccoon's mouth. The mouth was still attached to its skull. The raccoon was alive. That's true. And I drank that gray soap water, and I used to think to myself, oh, isn't this lovely? Isn't this quite lovely? It wasn't lovely. It was disgusting. And now I drink from fine china, and I step on the throats of my enemies. Anyone who questions my place in society or my right to stand in it is crushed and burned by the scalding hot properties of five, six, seven, eight coffee. I'm Eliza Doolittle, <laughs> and I do say to you, have a cup of five, six, seven, eight coffee, but only if you're rich. You can count on it. So I said to him, if you're going to put a hat on a horse, put a hat on the horse. Did I already say this to you? Oh, what a faux pas. Is it chocolate? I would so love a chocolate. Final thoughts on Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. This is a really good show. It is a really good show with some really great songs and really rock-solid moments. But I have to question if moving it to Broadway was a wise decision in the first place. 
it seems like the show is meant to be, destined to be, in a small tight enclosed venue. Uh, I would have loved to have experienced uh, the action as it took place all around me in those initial stagings. Throwing it onto a proscenium stage, even one that's been radically altered to keep some of that audience interaction intact, it distills the roguish weirdo nature of the show. Imagine having seen the original off-Broadway where you're surrounded by the actors and you get caught up in, in their heat, their sweat, their perspiration, uh, their, their kinetic energy. And then when you try to see on Broadway, you have to pay a premium to sit on stage and you realize, oh, I'm out of pocket now. I'm so drastically out of pocket. It wouldn't feel the same at all because now it would seem like you're, you're not part of, of these scrappy actors who are trying to bring you something really special. It just seems like you shelled out a lot of money that's probably not going to them in any way. It's going to some fucking fat cat producer, to use a cliche. I say this as someone who has never acted as a Broadway producer. That's pretty clear, right? I've never stood in those shoes. I've never had to make those decisions. Uh, but I would like to think that I can still bop them on the nose. I bop you on the knows, Broadway producers. You had a bad idea, I think. Uh, so the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical in 2017 was Dear Evan Hansen, and the other nominees that year were Come From Away and Groundhog Day. I'm going to be bold and say that Natasha Pierre should have won in the place of Dear Evan Hansen. Yes, why not? Natasha Pierre is ambitious and weird. It's not perfect, but it's original. And so is Hansen. I mean, it's very original in its own right. But Dear Evan Hansen is about a sociopath, and its story is troubling in a way that isn't productive. <laughs> it's not constructive, you know what I mean? Uh, more on that show on a later date, though, eh? Uh, if I were to rank the show, and I am going to rank the show because that's what we do every week here, I'm going to put it in between Kiss Me Kate and the Goodbye Girl. So, if you check out the spreadsheet, the pinned tweet on our Twitter profile will take you to a spreadsheet. Uh, the spreadsheet offers you a lot of information. It tells you what shows we've covered, and it provides to you in a separate tab uh, the current ranking of the shows. So, th this is how the list will look. Number one, Passing Strange. Number two, Kiss Me Kate. Number three, Natasha Pierre and The Great Comet of 1812. Number four, The Goodbye Girl. And number five, Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Now, uh, once again, I should say uh, that just because Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812 is right above The Goodbye Girl, I'm not trying to say it's only slightly better than The Goodbye Girl. I, I, I have to emphasize, it is much, much, much better than The Goodbye Girl. There is an enormous gap between those two shows, and we're going to be stuffing a lot of shows. Uh, we're going to be stacking them on top of The Goodbye Girl and Big River. Those are absolutely the bottom of the barrel right now, and I hope that we don't necessarily come to a an even worse show uh, sooner than we need to. Those those bad shows, I tell you, they really get under the skin, don't they? <laughs> uh, Show-related ephemera. The one thing that I found that I was intrigued by was a music video uh, fully produced by the Broadway production featuring Josh Groban, and it is for the song Dust and Ashes. Wow, is it strange. It is weird. It reminded me all over again. When it comes to video production and translating theater through the medium of video, 
It never works. This this comes off. You got to watch it. I'll link to it on Twitter, but you got to watch it because there is a crazy sepia filter. There is like this confetti ticker tape effect throughout the entire thing, and the editing is all over the place. It's a very meditative, slow song, but the editing cannot allow us to just sit in the song and sit still for a fucking second. Insanely, like it's like a YouTube user made a fan video. It incorporates still photos of Josh Groban from the show? This is a music video. We don't need still photo. We get it. You don't need to give photographic evidence that he's in the show. He's in full costume. He's wearing his potato sack with a pillow stuffed into it, acting as his big, big, you know, his tummy tum-tum. We get it. He's wearing the Harry Potter glasses and the and the, and the buckaroos and the bonsais. We, we see the whole thing. It also makes me think of if you've ever seen commercials for touring shows, I have seen a commercial for a, a tour of Little Shop of Horrors that was coming through some city, and it was so dreadful. Everyone was standing in front of this very rickety black curtain and doing the hammiest, the oh, the muggiest of mugs to the camera. And it, ma- it makes you want to run away, even if you're a huge fan of Little Shop or musical theater in general. When you see those commercials for touring shows, it makes you want to run away. It makes you feel embarrassed that you're a fan of musical theater at all. Get better at this stuff, everybody. Employ people people who actually know what they're doing. Goodness, that Dustin Ashes video, it makes this song, it made me realize just how insubstantial and muddled and confused and forgettable that song is. And I'm not going to apologize for that criticism. I'm not going to apologize for it. Now, normally, this is the moment in the show where we would take a ride on the musical carousel to determine what show we cover next. But we're not doing that this time around. No, no, no. One of our listeners has recently earned the right to dictate where we go next on our journey. That listener would be Marisol, and the show she selected for our next episode is none other than Shrek the Musical. That's right. Our next show is Shrek the Musical. But you you might be asking yourself, how did Marisol come to earn the right to determine where we go next? I mean, what gives her the right, you might be wondering to yourself. Well, that's because she's a Patreon donor. That's right. Oh, fuck yes. Oh, yes. The show is officially on Patreon, musicalmanpod.patreon.com. Once again, musicalmanpod.patreon.com. If you're familiar with Patreon, you will know that there are varying levels, tiers that you can subscribe to. You can be a $1 a month subscriber. If you are a $1 a month subscriber, you're going to get a verbal shout out in every episode. That's right. Every single episode. If this show takes off, that is going to be a hard thing for me to <laughs> that's going to be a hard thing for me to keep track of. But I'm going to commit to it right now. I'm going to get into the sticky sticky mud and I'm going to really wiggle myself down into it. My butt's all sticky. <laughs> so, if you get a, if you if you give me a dollar a month, I'm going to give you a verbal shout out in every single episode. That's right. Marisol, this is your verbal shout out. Thank you very much. But if you're a $3 a month donor, what do you get? You get a musical shout out in the style of a composer or character of your choice. I will reach out to you and I will confirm what you want to hear. Marisol has already told me what she wants to hear and we're going to hear it 
during the Shrek episode. Uh, so you're going to hear that. So she not only gets the verbal shout out, she gets the musical shout out. That's right. Now, if you're a $5 a month donor, you're going to be able to determine what, sh- uh, what show we uh, talk about next. That's exactly what Marisol did with Shrek. So if you give me $5 a month, you can make that choice. It is a one-time opportunity to make that happen. Uh, but nonetheless, you get to dictate where we go. And I think that's pretty damn special. Uh, so Marisol not only got to do the show selection, she not only is going to get a musical shout out next week, she's not only getting a verbal shout out now, but she is a because she's a $10 a month donor. That's the top tier. So she gets everything I just described. Plus, she is going to get access via the Patreon page. Again, that's musicalmanpod.patreon.com. Uh, she's going to get access to monthly bonus episodes. And they are going to be, uh, they're going to be entries in a new series known as The Snub Club. The Snub Club is a show in which we discuss Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. They were left in the dust, and we're going to find out if they deserved better, if they deserved one of those sweet, sweet nominations. Again, those bonus episodes are going to come out once a month, and the only people who will have access to them are those who donate $10 a month. So, if you want to be someone who donates to the show, go to musicalmanpod.patreon.com and do that today. If you can't afford to do so, that's absolutely fine, and I am completely glad that you are here anyway. I value every single one of you who listen to the show. I especially value you if you recommend the show to other people, if you tell people about the show. Uh, One great way to do that, to let the world know, is writing a review in the iTunes store. Marisol wrote a review, which is fantastic. Go to the iTunes store, search for The Musical Man, leave a five-star rating, and then write the review to accompany that five-star rating. Uh, We are on Podbean if you want to stream the show. Uh, that is musicalmanpod.podbean.com. We're also available on Spotify and Stitcher. Our Twitter handle is musicalmanpod. Uh, there are links to everything there, Spotify, cast albums, and uh, you, of course, there will be links to the Patreon as well. Please like and retweet. Help, help, help. Anything that you do, any little action that you take is extremely treasured. You can write to me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Tell me if you're a fan or not a fan of Natasha Pierre. Tell me your thoughts on that ending. I want to hear what your interpretations are. Uh, any of the other shows that we've talked about, I would love to hear your thoughts on those as well. Got to thank uh, Patty in the booth one uh, one more time this week. Got to thank Alex uh, for our art. Alex Green, that logo is delicious. And Zach Little, you heard his music uh, at the beginning. Uh, and normally you would have heard his carousel cue, but we didn't hear that this time around. Uh, maybe we'll hear that next week. Uh, and Zach, thank you again for that music. Fantastic. I really love it. Uh, now, uh, oh, no. <laughs> Jeez. That doorbell really does scare the living shit out of me. Oh, Book of Mormon doorbell, you're so spooky. Uh, You know what that sound means, though. Yes, yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night.